We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. If you're asking questions about God, your faith, or the meaning and purpose of life, we would love to connect with you. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. We hope this sermon encourages you today. Well, the assignment that Mark gave me was to kick off your Lenten series, and the freedom that he gave me was to also talk a bit about world relief, as I do. Now, you've picked up some of the pieces, and for some of you who have been here a while, you might think, I think I know this story pretty well. Some of you a, a little bit less well. I just want to remind you that for 80 years, Park Street Church and World Relief have shared a passion for taking the fullness of the gospel in all its richness, in word and deed, to the most marginalized and poor of the world. Whether it be people suffering from natural disasters, from human-made disasters, whether it be from war and poverty, whether it be from deep hunger, whether it be displacement, violence, and all the other things that disrupt the plan that God had for creation, we're there. And you've been there with us. And now one more time we get to share an experience together, Park Street Church and World Relief through this Lenten devotional. And I'm really grateful that you guys are kicking this off because once again, Park Street is doing something that's catalytic for other churches around the country to follow. Now I love the Lenten season because it calls us to a more intentional devotion to Jesus. But given the state of the human heart, we might fall into one ditch or another about Lent. One might be that we can miss it altogether, or the other ditch we could be, that we could be distorting it, taking away its beauty by making it simply ritual. Now, in the evangelical tradition that I came from, a lot of us undervalued Lent, and this became embarrassingly and publicly clear one time at the church where I was pastoring, Elmbrook Church in suburban Milwaukee. We had a large congregation, and we had our annual congregational meeting every February. And somebody came up to us and said, you know, given the size of the congregation, if we wanted to, we could probably break the Guinness World Record for potlucks. So we said, well, let's call it a family meeting, a family gathering, let's make it a little bit lighter, do it in the middle of the week, and let's go for it and see what happens. So everybody's getting excited and getting ready, and we had every reason to expect thousands would come, and they did. But in the afternoon before that meeting, I got a call from the local, local NBC affiliate, the television station, which was kind of our flagship. And they said, we're intrigued by what you're doing. We'd love to send a reporter out. Do you mind if we send somebody um, to uh, pick up on this? And I said, no, they'd be welcome. And then they said something that stopped me in my tracks. <clears throat> they said, the reason we want to send a reporter out is because we're intrigued that while most of the Christian world is on Ash Wednesday having a somber service. You guys are having a blowout feast. And I hung up the phone and I walked out to some other staff and said, Ash Wednesday, how in the world did we miss this? And we missed it because we had undervalued something beautiful and important in the church rhythms. You've been better instructed than that. 
but I thought I would let you know, get the slate clean right from the beginning, that we need to learn in broader parts of the evangelical church the beauty of this. Now, in honesty, perhaps part of my lack of attention to Lent was that because it was something I'd like to forget. As a boy, I grew up in a tradition where Lent was very important, but it was also laden with demands and to be lived out with heaping doses of self-denial and very little of a touch of grace. It got misshaped as a means of either trying to curry God's favor or to manipulate him to our own ends or maybe even to atone for our own sins. And all those things moved my heart further away from both grace and truth. And honestly, I wanted to forget Lent because it was a burdensome thing. But I learned better when I understood the power of Lent rightly applied. And today what I want to do is take you on a jury that I'm calling Lent and Joy. And you may say, Lent and Joy, that feels like an oxymoron. But I think joy is the very thing that Jesus is trying to bring us through these practices. And I think it's the essence of what he was drawing his disciples to in John 15, which you just heard read. Now, let me give you a little setting on this. Jesus is nearing the end of his earthly ministry. And he knows his guys are about to have their world turned upside down because he's about to tell them, in a very intimate setting, the upper room discourse, that he's about to leave the world. And they're stunned. And they don't know what to do with it. They're saying, Jesus, wait a minute. We thought you were going to overturn the Roman rule. You were going to restore Israel to its greatness. And now you're telling us that you're leaving? They had to be asking themselves, Jesus, are you abandoning us? What are we supposed to do now? Now, these are the men that Jesus was counting on to challenge all the world systems and to do even greater things than he did, to be stand-up men and, of course, the women as well, in a world that was continually bowing down to the world systems. And if you think about it, that's what he's expecting of us. And we, too, live in a world that is chaotic and broken. I wonder sometimes if you feel like I do, and like the disciples did, exhausted by all the chaos that's around you. Can't you sometimes, when you open up your news feed, can't you just feel the darkness starting to just come around you? The shalom of God seems all too often to be way out of reach. And you can feel like you're stuck in the spin cycle, always dizzy and always drained. It's the world that we live in. But Jesus has an antidote. He wants us to be alive and bearing fruit in a world that feels too much like a desert of righteousness, justice, mercy, and truth. He wants us to bear the fruit that the world desperately needs to see. And his antidote, it's pretty simple. He says, you stick close to me. You lean on me. And that is the heart of the Lenten practices. It is to once again invest in drawing close to Jesus, to break the rhythms and practices that easily distract us and get our hearts attuned to Christ as an investment in the rest of our year. Now, if we can put that slide up, and Rich, I know I threw you off by doing this in the NIV, but I did it for this reason. And I don't know how well you can see the colors up here, but we should take note as a tool of Bible study, when there's repetition or pattern, we should take note. And when Jesus says something multiple times, we should sit up straighter. 
Do you recognize in here that the word remain is used 11 times and the word fruit is used seven times in just 11 verses? Do you think maybe Jesus is trying to get something across? He's saying remain fruit. Remain, I can see you counting. Remain fruit, remain fruit. Do not remain no fruit. So Jesus is telling us the path by which we can be fruitful in this life. Now, I'd like to suggest a posture for you as we explore this. That you not focus so much on what Jesus wants from you, but rather on what he wants for you. Remember Jesus said he came to give us life and give it what? Abundantly. Jesus is a giver. He's not a taker. But we have to be in a position to receive. So let's ask this. If Jesus says fruit seven times, what might he mean by fruit? Well, the Bible talks about fruit in a lot of different ways. In Luke chapter 3, it talks about bearing the fruit, bringing the fruit of repentance. You see, when God awakens us to himself and shows us his holiness, the only right response for us is to be like Isaiah and to simply fall down on our faces in light of his glory and say, oh God, I'm undone, I'm a sinner. And this crying out to God and this metanoia, this turning of our attitudes to stop going where we were and to go in a new direction is repentance. And repentance is the first fruit. The bud of repentance always precedes the bearing of any other fruit. Now, what comes to your mind when I say the word repentance? Do you think of somebody on Tremont Street, old man with a sandwich board, saying, repent, the end is near, and you can kind of laugh it off? Well, true Lenten devotion should redeem the word repentance to us. From an empty rote phrase or word to a life-giving promise, God is a giver, and he sees us in our brokenness, and he says, you need the gift of repentance. You need the chance to have your thinking fundamentally reversed. And I'm giving this gift to you as a means of your liberation and your freedom. I want to set you free from the lies that the world and the flesh and the devil are telling you. And that fundamental reorientation of repentance leads us to the truth about ourselves so we can get out of the endless cycle of failure and instead experience the healing and cleansing of God. Now, most of us as God people would say, we want fruit. But the truth is, we don't really often want repentance, which again is the bud out of which the fruit is going to come. I want to speak very directly to you for a moment, and I hope also gently. Some of you are bearing little fruit right now because you're allowing and justifying known sin in your life. And that is stopping the flow of the sap of Jesus into the fullness of your life. And it is suffocating the work that he wants to do in you. Do not wonder why there is little fruit if you are not remaining. You separated from the vine. I say that because I think it's my pastoral duty to say it. In the love of Christ, listen to the Holy Spirit if he's speaking to you. Now there are other forms of fruit. They're the fruits of the Spirit. Remember them? Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, 
self-control. There was a funeral that I was at. A beloved man at 89 had passed away, and all the people were telling us at the church, we used to teach in Sunday school about the fruits of the Spirit, but we said, you know, if you really want to know what they're like, you go follow that man for one day. How would you like it to be that one day someone would say that about you? That they would put all those words together and say, that's him, that's her. That's the kind of fruit that God is looking for. But there's also the fruit of worthy witness. I had the privilege some years back of sitting on a floor in Amman, Jordan, sitting down with a Syrian woman who had just fled Syria along with a nine-year-old daughter. And she was telling me the story that in her village they had word that the militia was going to be coming and conscripting all the men and young boys into the army. And so they were terribly frightened, waiting for that day to come. They got word that the militia was on the way, and the boys scattered to wherever they could hide. And a number of them decided to hide in a chicken coop. And they were told later that the militiamen found him in the chicken coop, and they declared that since you want to be with the chickens, we will slaughter you like chickens. And that day, that mother and many others lost their sons. To compound her grief, her nine-year-old daughter had a congenital heart defect which could not be treated, and she was dying from an inoperative heart. She was not getting the oxygen that she needed. So she decided, I have to flee Syria. And against all odds, she made it into Jordan. And as she sat on the floor, she said, here's what I can't understand. I'm in this house that was provided because the people in the churches of Jordan, the Christian churches supported by world, they provided this place for me. And World Relief, working through the churches, had supplied the money for an operation for her daughter who sat right next to her beaming in this process. And she said, I cannot understand that the people that I was told all my life I must fear are the ones who greeted me with such love. It's a fruit of worthy witness. And here is the reality, folks. That woman was met and she was changed by worthy witness that came through world relief. And that's your fruit. Park Street, that's your fruit. There's also the fruit of reconciliation. I recall another time when I was in Rwanda, and you all know the terrible stories of nearly one million people killed at the hands of their countrymen in a period of 100 days, and not just their countrymen, their neighbors and their friends, the people they went to school with and to work with, even members of their own family. Their children would play together even in their own church where they worshiped together, and the Hutu and Tutsi tribes, it was the most terrible scene of genocide. One missionary was quoted on the front of Time magazine saying, if you look, there are no more devils in hell. They are now all in Rwanda. It was brutality at its deepest place. But during that time, there were a group of pastors trained and empowered by World Relief trying to do the work of reconciliation among the Hutu and the Tutsis. And I was at one of those such gatherings. And there were people from the Hutu tribe, the perpetrators, who stood up and in sobs and tears 
begged God to forgive them and then begged these families to forgive them because they could name by name the family members that they had killed. And I watched in shock and I was stunned as these pastors and world relief workers very carefully, very wisely began to usher them through this process so they wouldn't force it, so it wouldn't be artificial or inauthentic, but these pastors and world relief workers were being midwives of reconciliation. And it was working because already hundreds had been reconciled, and now that's a community of hundreds of families of Hutus and Tutsis again living in peace together. And Park Street, that is your fruit. Sometimes the fruit is quiet and unseen. I get to tell you a story about my wife because back home I don't get to tell stories about her, so I'm going to tell, tell one to you about her. But we were in a coffee shop together and just reading and talking, and I got a phone call, so I had to step out. But as I was going out, I noticed that there was a young man in the corner of the coffee shop at a table by himself, and he's kind of shouting over everybody else, addressing the various tables. And it was clear that he was troubled, and he just was going to make his thoughts known to everybody in there. So I went out and made my call, and about 15 minutes later, I came back, and Jewel wasn't at our table. She was sitting at his table like this. Really? Oh, tell me more. Well, what do you think about this? And at that moment, that man felt like he was the most important person in the world. And do you know why? Because at that moment, he was the most important person in the world to my wife, Jewel, and that's all he needed. So then she came back. He quieted down. She sat at the table, went right back to her reading. I thought to myself, you know, in the best of my days, I might have done something like that, but you can bet I would have told somebody about it. It was the fruit of her compassion, born of the Spirit of Jesus in her. But it's also quiet when you choose to forgive someone who has offended or hurt you. When you choose sexual purity, when the world is just screaming for you, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, but God is saying it does. It's fruit when you forbear when someone cuts you off in traffic. I need that one. And it can also be quiet and costly. Keeping a marriage covenant when the journey includes years and even decades of sickness or misunderstanding and wounds, but each day, each person rises and says, I choose you and only you. And then they say to God, God, I'm clinging to the vine. Jesus, I'm clinging to your vine because I will never survive this if I don't have you. It's fruit. You know what it's like. You've seen it. It's beautiful. Fruit, it's what God expects. It's what the world needs. That's what you want. Now let me offer you a few lessons about fruit. Lesson number one, don't expect fruit from false vines. You know that first verse up there? Jesus says, I am the true vine. Do you know why he was saying that? Because there are false vines. And the disciples were likely just having passed, before they went to the upper room, likely having passed the temple, they would have seen this huge mosaic of the, of the vine of Israel. You heard it in the um, Old Testament reading, Psalm 80, saying of God, you brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? Why? Because the vine of Israel had been disconnected from the heart of God and it was not bearing fruit. 
And so Jesus declares, I am the true vine. And that's the first meaning of his declaration. But I think it's fair for us to see a warning in that as well. Israel had forsaken God and inviting in him in exchange for false vines, and you and I are tempted to do the same thing. We are tempted to attach ourselves to vines that make all these promises for our fulfillment and our well-being and our affirmation and our self-actualization, but they're false vines. Tim Keller put it this way. He said, ask yourself, what thing in your life, if it were taken away from you, would gut you? A growing career, financial security, affirmation of others, professional success, maybe your appearance or your health. When you name these things, Keller said, you have named your idols. We might say your false finds. And you know what's interesting? Those things that we covet and seek after, Jesus didn't possess most of those things, and he never promised them to his followers. Now, the reality is, in grace, God allows us to have some of those things for seasons in life. But what Jesus is saying is, those things are false finds in that they can never bear the full weight of your soul. Only I can. And when you attach those false finds, you are setting yourself up for pain. You're setting yourself up for disappointment. In love, Jesus is telling his guys, I'm the true vine. And only the life-giving nourishment I can give bears the lasting fruit that the world needs. So here's another lesson. Don't expect fruit from dead branches. I brought this, I picked this up in the park across the street last night, which saved me from bringing it on the airplane. Because I have one like this in my office. And I put it there to remind me of this is me disconnected from Jesus. Now, at one point, this was connected to a tree. And it was fruitful. It bore leaves, maybe berries, maybe acorns. And it provided cover for the birds, a place to build their nests, food for birds and squirrels. And it was lush and it was beautiful. But disconnected, cut off, this is what it looks like. And I just looked at this and said, Oh, Jesus, this is me when I'm disconnected from you. And whatever people might have reasonably come to me for at one point and might have found some covering and some protection and some fruit, they'd come now and they'd walk away disappointed. What happened to that? What happened to him? You and I can easily lose our fruitfulness as soon as we sever the connection to Jesus. Now here's another lesson. Beware artificial fruit. Because here's what you and I are good at. Ooh, somebody might see that this, I'm just a dead branch. I better dress this thing up. And you know what? We know how to do that. We know how to reflect the right image, to say the right words, to, to give the right um, signals. And we can fool people. And over time, we can even fool ourselves. But the reality is, at one point or another, we will be exposed as imposters. Why? Because God loves us too much to let us live in the deception of our false fruit. Let me see if this helps you. I've got two vases here, two rows 
arrangements. One of them is alive and one of them is artificial. We dressed up dead branches. Aren't we good at it? Can you tell from there which is which? Do you know how you do tell? This one gives the aroma that God created it for. The aroma of Christ. It's, what it, it's doing what it was made for. This one can't do that. But you know what else? This one will never bear seed. This one will never reproduce. And you and I have to beware that our temptation is that we will cover up our dead branches and you know we can do it in a way that fools other people and they even celebrate us. But we must not live there. And let's not become good for nothing. Take a look at verse 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus says. But the truth is, there are all kinds of things that you and I can do in the name of Jesus, but devoid of a real connection with Jesus, he would say, oh, that's nothing. That's nothing. If you think about the Apostle Paul, when he was talking in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, though I can speak with the tongue of men and of angels, then he goes on and he talks about he gives his body to be burned, and all these grand things, but if I do not have love, I am what? I am just a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And there are a lot of scholars who would say, you know, Paul was really referring to a pagan practice of the time when the pagan priests would go through the streets and they'd be banging on cymbals and gongs, calling people to worship in the pagan temple. And Paul is saying essentially, if I am bearing false fruit, if I am pretending all these things but I do not have love, I am doing these people no more good than if I was a pagan priest calling him the worship of a pagan god. Doesn't that sober us up? And people might even celebrate us for doing that. But God knows. And here's the reality, folks. I have been a dead branch at times. And so have you. And I have tried to dress up my dead branches and I've paraded around my artificial fruit and I'm betting you have too. Now here is a spot where we can go wrong in all of this. This is a place where we can get crushed by shame and motivated by guilt. You could walk out of here and say, oh, good grief, I've got to bear more fruit, right? I'm going to bear more fruit. Here's the reality. You cannot will fruit. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be patient. How's that working for you? You cannot will fruit. And you know what? There's nowhere in this passage where you are commanded to bear fruit. Do you get that? Fruit is the natural and the organic result of being connected to the vine. Remain fruit, remain fruit, remain fruit. You don't get the fruit without the remaining, but Jesus never said, I want you guys bearing fruit. Without telling you that the way that it happens, I think I just muted myself. What Jesus was trying to get across is that unless we are vitally connected to him, we're not going to bear fruit. But if we are, we're not struggling to bear fruit. It's the life of Christ in us and through us naturally bearing what we were made to bear. Do you think that branch, when it was lush, was going, mm, I'm going to create some fruit today? 
No, but, but isn't that what we do? When we remain in Jesus, fruit is the natural byproduct, but remaining is a choice. Remaining is our offering to God. Fruit is his gift in us and through us. But we could ask, what does it mean to remain? Clearly it means to abide with Jesus, to rest in Jesus, to walk with Jesus, to be devoted to Jesus. But Jesus says something here that we'd probably kind of wish he didn't. He says in verses 9 to 10, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Here's the point. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commands and remain in his love. Obedience. Obedience as, the, as Jesus to the Father, so us to Jesus. And if we're honest, obedience scares us because our flesh rebels and the enemy lies to us, but obedience empowers and it releases truth in our lives. Obedience, the remaining, is what causes us to bear fruit. There's a miracle in obedience because every time you choose obedience, small or large, what's happening is that you are setting something powerful in motion because more of the life of Jesus is making its way into you. And what it's also doing is creating more intimacy. Because when we present ourselves to Jesus in love, he's presenting himself back. And it's not that he loves us anymore because of that, but we can receive it more. We can understand it more. We can sense his work in us because we have gotten rid of the barriers that keep us from clearly hearing what he has to say to us. And the vital sap of Jesus is in our lives and it draws us close to his heart. You know, from the beginning, what God was after when he created us was intimacy. In the garden, walk and talk with Adam and Eve. And the enemy's desire from the beginning was to break intimacy between God and us and one another. And the enemy is still after that. And it's remaining in Jesus that protects the intimacy vertically and horizontally. And so we must remain and Lenten practice is a response we offer to God and his longing for intimacy. And we present ourselves and we say, Lord, here I am. I'm yours. I want you to sit for just a minute in this thought because it doesn't make sense. The greatest act of self-interest you will ever perform for yourself is unconditional surrender to Jesus. This is the work of it. Obedience is our response in love to God's work in us when we are scared, when we disagree with God, when his word does not align with our sensibilities, probably especially then. But the truth and the power of the gospel are going to flow through your life, released by obedience. Last lesson, expect pruning. Verse one, the father's involved joining Jesus in this divine act of bearing fruit. Now the Greek word here that's translated cuts off in verse one has principally two meanings. The first is to lift off from the ground. And what vine dressers would tell you, it's to take clumps of grace that are on the ground, that are drooping, and to gently lift them up and tie them back in place. Vine dressers would call that process training. 
And the Father does that work in our lives. But the second meaning is to cut away the diseased and the dead. Disease hides in our dead wood. And it's also to cut away the suckers, those shoots that are on our lives that will take vital nutrients but will never bear fruit. And the Father in love is inspecting your branches and mine, and he's tending to them. And if something is dead or diseased or is a sucker that drains our vitality, he will go for it. And the Father prunes our branches with a purpose so that we can bear more fruit. Now in gardening, as in our own lives, the deeper you prune, the more fruit you get. I used to think it was the other way around, that if you don't prune, you get less fruit. But somebody who knows about grapes said, no, it's actually the opposite. If you don't prune, you get tons of grapes, but they're small and they make lousy wine. Like our overbusy lives, perhaps. But discipline of pruning is hard. I don't like it. It hurts. And God seems to delight in cutting deeper than I would ever choose. But in those times, I try to just picture in my mind the faithful gardener saying to me, Scott, I know this hurts, but you watch what I do with this in your life. Because he's trustworthy and he's good. And a life-giving Lenten process is to us, for us to present ourselves to God for pruning. Lord, you will not have to chase me. I'm presenting myself for pruning. I'm going to ask you to forbear as I tell one more story about one of my, the other women in my life that I don't get to tell at home. This is about my daughter, Jacqueline. She was about 12 or 13 at the time, and I walked past her room, and I heard her weeping. And I thought, well, I should give her a little time. And after I heard the crying had stopped, I just rapped on the door, sweetheart, can I come in? And I did, and her face was still flushed with tears, and I said, honey, do you want to tell me what's troubling you? And she said, Dad, I've been just thinking about it. She said, I'm not as pretty as Abby. I'm not as good a volleyball player as Erica. And she went on to compare herself in two or three other ways. And then she just looked at me and she said, but Dad, I just, whatever I have, I want God to have it all. She was presenting herself for pruning from the power, the destructive power of self-comparison and of that comparison that would destroy the vitality of her life and the pride of life and she presented herself for that pruning and now we get to see the beautiful wine that God is producing in her life. I want to suggest for you a few prayers as you enter into this Lenten season and as you consider the pruning that God might do. Here's the first one. Father, please help me to fear being fruitless more than fearing your pruning. God, help me to fear that I would be unlike you and I'd be fruitless more than I fear that you might have to prune me. Here's a second prayer. Thank you, Lord, for loving me enough to wound me. I surrender to your care and I trust you. Thank you for loving me so much, Lord. You'll wound me so that I don't have to stay the way I am. And here's the last one. Lord, I give you permission to do whatever you need to do to conform me more to the image of your son, Jesus. And he will not be surprised if you then pray as I have to. But Lord, please be merciful to me. I am weak and I don't want to go through pain. But God, in spite of that, I present myself to you.
Do you think a Heavenly Father won't pay attention to that prayer? In Park Street Church, I understand that this has been a season of pruning for you. God is doing a work. God's not surprised. He's not out of control. He is a faithful gardener. He's tending to this garden he loves called Park Street Church. I just want to encourage you, present yourself to him. Trust him. Rest in him. And do you know what comes out of all that? Look at verse 11. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Jesus is a giver, not a taker. Jesus wants you to have joy. And if you're in a place in your life where you're asking, I wonder where my joy has gone, you might want to ask, I wonder how well I'm remaining. I want to close with an invitation that Jesus gave to these same disciples and those gathered around. And I want you to picture that this is Jesus saying this to you because we do this on good authority. So if you would close your eyes and listen to the words of Jesus out of Matthew 11 here, this is his heart that calls you to remaining and bearing fruit. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you hear the tender call of Jesus? What he wants for you? One translation reads, learn from me the unforced rhythms of grace. And if you do, you will bear fruit. You will bear fruit. It will happen. And you will find joy. It will happen. And the people of Park Street Church that sit in these same pews 80 years from now will see the fruit of your devotion, your sacrifice, your faithfulness, and your creativity, and they will rise up and call you blessed. That's what God wants for you. And this Lenten season is an opportunity for you to present yourself to the Lord who wants to make you fruitful. Let me pray for you. Oh, gracious Father, I pray that whatever I might have said today that wasn't from you, I really pray that it would just not trouble these good people in the least, that they would just fall off of them before they leave the building. But Father, whatever was from you, I pray that you would burrow into their heart and you'd water it and you'd cause it to bear much good fruit to your glory and to their good and to the fullness of your joy in them, Jesus. And in your name I pray. Amen.